Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are armed with a hoe and a spade in hand as we attempt to pluck out our deeply rooted compulsive behavior of people-pleasing. Now, before you question how bad could pleasing someone really be, I will just say stop, listen, and hold on to your hat. This episode is meant to be eye-opening to help you notice these characteristics in yourself and in others as a way to bring awareness and the opportunity for change. I, for one, held out on addressing these issues longer than I should. Frankly, I was in denial, a notable characteristic in itself. I'm helping people. Hello. Doesn't anyone but me recognize this? For some reason, I just had the capacity to be able to take on more and solve everyone else's problems while solving my own. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, if you just said yes, then you're in as bad a shape as I was. So stay tuned. I didn't know what people were referring to when they would say things like, take care of yourself first before you can take care of others. If I would have taken the time to do that, then they would have been in even more of a mess than they were to start with. Jeez, looking back now, I can see how ridiculous that line of thinking was. But then, under the influence, without the awareness, it sounded perfectly normal. Thank you to CODA, Codependence Anonymous, for opening my eyes. Dr. Shauna Freshwater helps us understand what we're dealing with in codependency traits. What, how, when are these traits formed? Found at spaciousTherapy.com. Codependency is a group of personality traits or personality characteristics. They're cognitive, emotional, and behavior patterns that affect an individual's ability to have a healthy, mutually satisfying relationship with oneself and with others. These are maladaptive patterns. Codependency is also known as relationship addiction because people with codependency characteristics often form or maintain unhealthy relationships. These unhealthy relationships are often one-sided, emotionally destructive, and sometimes physically or psychologically abusive. There are many characteristics and signs and symptoms of codependency. Here are some, although the list is not exhaustive. Deciding whether you're codependent or not is not about how many of these traits you have, but more about whether they are causing you distress and interfering with your physical and emotional health, peace of mind, and relationship with yourself and other relationships. So here are a list of characteristics of codependency. Hyper-aware of other people's problems and needs in the form of caretaking, control, advice-giving, and over-worrying about others. Demanding, controlling, and perfectionistic. You want things to be done a certain way and may resort to telling others what to do and how to do it. Hypercritical of others because they often don't live up to your high expectations. Your high expectations also make it hard for you to ask for or accept help from others. 
stressed out, or anxious when things don't go exactly and perfectly as planned. Hyper-focused on predictability, structure, and certainty, things you probably didn't have in your childhood family. Self-critical, unrealistic expectations for yourself. Self-talk is often harsh about your imperfections and mistakes. Your self-criticism is a result of your low self-esteem and the harsh criticism you've received from others during childhood. You feel responsible for everything and everyone, even other people's happiness, but you deny your own happiness and needs. People pleaser. You're afraid to upset or disappoint others, but this can lead to an overextending of yourself to exhaustion. Dependable and responsible. People can always count on you to be reliable. You feel guilt if you don't follow through, even if you're sick in bed. Boundary issues. You have trouble with speaking up for yourself and saying no. Sometimes you allow people to mistreat you or take advantage of your kindness because you don't want to hurt their feelings, let them down, or create a conflict. Ignore your own feelings and needs, often suppressing them, denying them, avoiding them, or numbing them. These occur at the conscious level. They look like self-defeating behaviors. In addition to denying your feelings and needs, you may have a difficult time seeing how unmanageable or unhappy your life is. This is a form of subconscious defense, repression, disassociation. Your happiness is dependent upon what other people are feeling or doing. For example, if your partner is in a good mood, you can relax a little bit. However, if your partner is angry, you feel anxious. You have a hard time separating yourself from another person's feelings, needs, and experiences. You define yourself in relation to others, but lack a strong sense of self, knowing who you are, what you believe, what you like, and what you want. Emotional pain. For some individuals, the pain is close to the surface, like shame. And for others, the pain is buried in the subconscious, like anger and rage. Guilty and ashamed. Guilt and shame are the roots of low self-worth and low self-esteem. You probably feel there is something wrong with you. Perhaps someone told you this directly, or you may have come to this conclusion based on how you've been treated. Yet you minimize the problems or sensitivities. Martyr. Saint, survivor, taking care of everyone else, giving without receiving, and feeling angry, resentful, and taken advantage of by others. Passive-aggressive, sometimes you feel good, needed, and worthwhile, and other times you feel angry and resentful, and you complain about having to do everything, but you still continue the pattern of people-pleaser. Reactive. Anger and resentments build up over time, causing you to explode over trivial matters. Then you feel shame and guilt, and you may overcompensate, a Pollyanna do-good. Overwork and overschedule yourself as ways to prove your self-worth 
or distract you from low self-esteem and other painful feelings. Intimacy, open communication, and trust are difficult because you didn't have role models for healthy relationships in childhood. And in adulthood, you've probably been betrayed in your relationships but stayed anyway. Afraid of anger, criticism, rejection, and failure. You play it safe or become invisible with your own needs. Minimizing problems, minimizing others' behaviors, and minimizing one's own needs. You probably feel on the edge or have episodes of anxiety and depression. If you don't have diagnostic clinical levels of anxiety or depression or a generalized anxiety disorder, you feel tense, anxious, or stressed frequently. Or you may feel like you're having a nervous breakdown. You probably have ongoing or reoccurring episodes of physical problems manifesting from the stress. Have you identified with some or all of the codependency signs and symptoms on this list? Codependency can be difficult to accept because it has received such negative stigma from the public. Many codependents feel ashamed, blamed, and like they've done something wrong to cause all these traits. Please understand two important basic points about codependency. One, you are not responsible for what occurred in your childhood. It is not your fault. You are not to blame. Two, you're an adult now, and the most important relationship you will ever have is the one with yourself. During infancy and through childhood and adolescence is when personality forms. The core of personality is formed by age five, and the years that follow are just add-on personality characteristics or traits. Codependency developed during those important formative years as a way to cope with trauma of any kind. Many codependents grew up in a family with mental illness, a family of addiction, family system dysfunction, or other problems. Other individuals with codependency traits appear on the surface level to have seemingly normal childhoods, but codependent traits and behavioral patterns were passed down unknowingly by primary caregivers who were codependents. Other individuals with codependency traits have buried so deeply the wounding or painful memories of childhood that it's like amnesia, and therefore stored in the subconscious. Codependency amnesia can and often happens when there were any of the following. Emotional neglect. Primary caregivers were emotionally distant, didn't meet your emotional needs. Primary caregivers were inconsistent in providing nurturing love. There was emotional or verbal abuse, threats, name-calling, silent treatment, Physical abuse of any kind, slapping, scratching, hair pulling, spanking. Primary caregivers will deny that their behavior was harmful, claim that it was not abuse because it didn't leave a mark. Primary caregivers will say things like, you had a roof over your head. We fed you, clothed you. You don't have anything to complain about. The pain of being abused lied to, cheated on, neglected, ignored, cursed at, rejected, made to feel invisible or invalidated, has never healed. 
The key point, codependency traits represent difficulties in loving, accepting, trusting, and being true to self. Codependents carry shame, guilt, and feelings of inadequacy, which led to constantly trying to please other people, prove their worth, seek external validation at great costs, but with little reward. Codependents are focused outward on trying to please, help, fix, wrapped up in an attempt to intervene or control other people and situations. Codependents base happiness and feelings on what other people are doing rather on internal feelings and values. Codependents don't know how to be their true self because they've never learned how. They never learn truly what they want and how to be happy with self. Remember, codependency is not your fault. You didn't cause it. You became codependent as a way to adapt to an unhealthy childhood. Your primary caregivers were not healthy, so your codependent traits developed as a survival mechanism. As an adult, however, codependency traits cause you problems and get in the way of you having a happy, healthy relationship with yourself and others. So although you didn't cause the origin of infant-child-adolescent survival adaptations to the family environment, you are the only one who can change your codependent characteristics now. You are now responsible to heal, nurture, and take care of your inner wounded child and yourself. I was able to give a check mark to many of those characteristics, but here's the good news. It's not a disease and there is treatment. It starts with being honest with yourself and a willingness to address these behaviors. For some of us, they're a hindrance, but they also can be a safety net. It's not easy calling yourself out and rerouting your efforts in a more positive and productive way. Today, I still have to check myself before I wreck myself. I've made great strides in noticing the behavior and re-engineering my thinking, but there's times Matt has to give me a gentle nudge. Hey, you don't have to worry about that. Just that kind reminder, no shame, no guilt, just an awakening to what's actually happening can allow me a moment to shift my thinking. Dr. Bruce Y. Lee gives us some strategies on how to deal with people pleasers who go too far, found at psychologytoday.com. Now, at first glance, people pleasers may seem like good folks to have around. After all, you're presumably a person and would presumably like to be pleased. The moniker people pleaser certainly sounds more positive than people irritator or people angerer. <laughs> However, there are many situations where people pleasers can be the very opposite of pleasing, which may not be what people pleasers necessarily want to hear. That's because the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a people pleaser as a person who has an emotional need to please others, often at the expense of his or her own needs or desires. However, for some people pleasers, add to this definition and potentially at the expense of his or her friends, close collaborators, and partners' needs or desires. 
and you can see how you would end up on the wrong side of a big-time people-pleaser effort. Initially, it can be tempting to establish a closer professional or personal relationship with just any people-pleaser. A people-pleaser may be quick to offer help and compliments such as telling you how great you are. And all of this may seem quite genuine because you're indeed great, right? (laughs) How can you not like someone who provides compliments and assistance? Heck, throw in a few blocks of cheese, an opera cake or two, and some sushi, and what more could you want? But the closer you get to some people-pleasers, the more you begin noticing cracks in the candy coating. Depending on his or her drive to please... The people-pleaser can be rather indiscriminate in dispensing the pleasing, trying to help everyone, including those who may make both of your lives more difficult. For example, if you're collaborating with a major people-pleaser on a project, they may end up spending more time helping others than actually working on the project. Or if you're in a personal relationship with a big-time people-pleaser, They may not dedicate nearly enough time and effort to your relationship because, again, their focus is trying to please everyone else. This can be especially problematic when the heavy-duty people-pleaser must inevitably choose between you and the others in the conflict. Take a wild guess at which direction a colossal people-pleaser may lean. You got it. In fact, if you're close enough to a particularly obsessive people-pleaser, you can get sucked into their toilet bowl-like vortex of people-pleasing. Confront a major league people-pleaser about such frustrating behaviors, and you may get what's essentially the Brian Adams, everything I do, I do for you argument. The people-pleaser may claim that all of their people-pleasing efforts are simply to help you. Such logic can seem as twisted as fettuccine in a ceiling fan, (laughs) since the super-duper people-pleaser actions may actually be making your life much more difficult. Ultimately, this whole Brian Adams argument can be nothing more than a bunch of hot air, an attempt to pin you as the motivation rather than the real motivation, the all-star people-pleaser's compulsion to please others. Speaking of hot air, constant people-pleasing can be like feeding beans to someone who is already quite bloated. Unless the people-pleaser is like Siri, an automation with unlimited time and energy, trying to please everyone can create increasing pressures inside a ginormous people-pleaser. This pressure can lead to the people-pleaser developing various stress-induced health problems, This could range from weird rashes to sleep problems to anxiety and depression to even nervous breakdowns. Yet, when you recommend to the people-pleaser better prioritizing of their time and effort, a less self-aware people-pleaser may respond with excuses, sidestepping, and repeats of the Brian Adam argument, everything I do, I do for you. In fact, a super-duper people-pleaser may even get a bit feisty with you. That's because standing between much-needed gotta-have-it people-pleaser and the need to please can in some cases be like standing between the cookie monster and a bunch of cookies.
Like any compulsion, the need to people please, if strong enough, can lead the pleaser into some tangled situations. In order to avoid confrontation or conflict, a people pleaser may end up massaging the truth and even flat out lying. Remember that Shakespearean saying that's not actually from William Shakespeare, but rather Sir Walter Scott? Oh, what a tangle web we weave, when first we practice to deceive. Well, trying to keep everyone happy all the time can result in quite a tangled web indeed. Of course, not all people pleasers are the same. They can vary in how frequently and strongly they people please, as well as in how aware they are of their urges and behaviors and how effectively they can self-regulate. So the question is, where on the spectrum your people pleaser may fall. The best way to find out is to be frank and straightforward. Directly tell the people pleaser your concerns in a clear yet non-threatening manner. You could say something like, I feel like a crushed tomato when you spend all your time helping those 10,578 people, you know, be specific, and in turn, don't seem to have enough time to work on our first shopping cart on Mars project together. If the person admits to their behavior and takes concrete steps to change it, then you've got a ready, fixable situation. If, on the other hand, the person denies such behavior and instead begins to attack and gaslight you, then you've got a problem on your hands. In all cases, it will be important to establish clear, healthy boundaries. Clearly delineate what's acceptable versus not acceptable behavior and the consequences for crossing the boundaries. If the two of you are working together, try to make the workflow, objectives, milestones, and deliverables as transparent as possible. If you're in a personal relationship with the person, clearly delineate your needs and expectations and when they are and aren't being met. If you find established boundaries repeatedly being crossed or milestone expectations being missed, you may want to cut ties with the big league people pleaser or at least minimize contact. When you try to withdraw, you may find the major people pleaser trying to lure you back in with some trinkets and baubles. Remember though, trinkets and baubles aren't the same as completing the work or doing what's needed for a relationship. Unless, of course, you are in the trinket and bobble-making business, or you really, really, really like bobbles. Anyway, ultimately, people-pleasing is like any behavior. When done in moderation, it can be a good thing. You don't necessarily want to be with someone who says, I have no interest in pleasing anyone at any time. But anything, with the possible exception of baking chocolate chip cookies done in excess and in a way that negatively affects your work and or your well-being can be bad and certainly not pleasing in any way. I love to tell this story because it was me noticing the behavior in someone else, which was as eye-opening to her as it was for me. So one winter, I was in a facility getting ready to start a Women Connect support group. Our topic that night was, yes, codependency. As the ladies were gathering in the common room, a gal to my left sat down a little agitated. You could tell she had something on her mind, so I just asked, what's up? 
She said, I wish I could call my husband and tell him to turn up the heat because it's going to get cold tonight. Hmm. I said very calmly, don't you think if it gets cold, he will turn up the heat? She smiled, and then I assured her she was in the right group. (laughs) Now, you may be laughing at that or shaking your head knowing full well that you've had those same thoughts or said the same types of things. Imagine letting those types of feelings go and only worrying about yourself. Close your eyes for a second and go there with me. No one needs you. Everyone can take care of themselves. It's only you and your thoughts, your goals, and your dreams. Keep your eyes shut if you want and soak that in or open and realize unless you have young children or elderly family members who truly need your help, people can take care of themselves. And if they fall, they learn from their mistakes, just like you. John Jadnick teaches us how to change your thoughts and behavior patterns for the better at BetterHelp.com. If you have thoughts or behavior patterns that you know are unhealthy or unproductive or even toxic to yourself and those around you, Changing can be hard. After all, these patterns are part of life. Deciding that you need to change your thoughts and behavior patterns for the better is a huge step, but it can leave you wondering where to start. To change your thoughts, you need to understand how your thought process works. This sounds simple, but it's a bit more challenging than you might think. Our minds are running all the time like a computer, not just while we're actively paying attention to something or trying to figure something out. While you're driving, taking a shower, reading, or watching television, your mind is running wild. Mindfulness proponents call this your monkey mind. Your brain tends to tune out the monkey mind, but still has a huge influence on how you think and feel. Learning to pay more attention to your monkey mind can be difficult but it can help you understand and actively change your outlook. One of the best ways to understand your monkey mind is through a process called mindful meditation. Usually used to reduce stress, this thought exercise can also help you to understand and change your thought and behavior patterns. To begin, sit or lie down comfortably. Close your eyes. Focus on your breath. You don't need to change your breath to make it deeper or slower. Just pay attention to how your breath feels as it enters and leaves your body. Chances are, you're only going to be able to focus on your breath for a few moments before your monkey mind interrupts. That's okay. Just take note of what the thought was about and go back to focusing on your breath. Try to do this for at least five minutes. By the end of your time, you may have noticed a trend in the kinds of thoughts that were distracting you. Try to perform this exercise at least once a week, but working up to at least five minutes per day. Once you've been doing this for a while, you should be more aware of what your monkey mind is telling you throughout the day. 
If you're actively trying to change it for the better, it's probably your monkey mind that's holding you back. Being able to intercept it can help you prevent it from determining your behavior. Your monkey mind can control your behavior, but your behavior is more readily observable than your monkey mind. Chances are, if you're interested in changing your thoughts and behavior patterns in the first place, it was probably your behavior that let you know that something wasn't right. Monitoring your behavior is an active endeavor, but it doesn't have to involve meditation. It just has to involve paying attention to how your behavior makes you feel. Sometimes the behavior that you want to change is a behavior that you have made a habit. That means it can be hard not to do it even if you regret it afterwards. So treat these behaviors kind of like you treated your intrusive thoughts in the mindfulness exercise. That is, don't beat yourself up. Just pay attention to how they make you feel and see what kinds of trends you may notice. This can do two important things. First, it can help you to understand chains of events that can lead you to unwanted behaviors or to isolated events that can trigger the behaviors. For example, maybe you only behave in an unwanted way when you are with specific people or if you've been drinking, or when you've had a bad day at work. Once you recognize the things that lead you to unwanted behavior, you may find that you can interrupt the chain of events. Second, reminding yourself of the negative feelings that you have after performing the unwanted behavior can help you to steer clear of it. Reminding yourself of your past regret over the behavior before you do it can convince yourself that the behavior isn't worth it. Sometimes we don't understand what's wrong with our behavior. We only know that it hurts those around us. When this is the case, it can be difficult to monitor your behavior patterns and feelings on your own. But that doesn't mean that you are without hope. If you don't understand how your behavior is hurting others or even which behavior is causing the problem, you can often find out by asking. This can feel a little awkward, but if you're genuine with others when you ask them, they will usually understand and offer advice. If you know what behavior you want to change, it can be easy to reach out to the people that it impacts. Try starting the conversation with something like, I'm trying to change X about myself, and I think it'll be easier for me if I understand how it makes others feel. If you don't know the behavior you want to change, You just know that there needs to be a change. It can be harder to find people to talk to. Consider starting with people who you're close to, like family members or coworkers. You don't need to start by owning your negative behavior. Instead, you could begin the conversation something like, I'm trying to be a better person, but I don't know where to start. Are there any things that I do or say that upset you? This may seem like opening yourself up to some hurtful feedback. Facing that you need to change your behavior can be difficult, but it's a journey that you've already started. If you're honest with someone when asking for help, they're not likely to use it as an excuse to make you feel bad about yourself. Try to remember that they have your best interest at heart, even if they give some feedback that may be hard to hear. Understanding where your thoughts and behavior patterns come from can help you to change them for the better. 
Sometimes we don't know where our thoughts and behaviors come from. Other times, however, we may be able to recognize our negative thoughts and behaviors in those around us. It could be that these are the people who we pick them up from. Sometimes we picked up negative behaviors from parents, coworkers, or friends. Identifying where you picked up an unwanted behavior can help you to understand how to avoid it as well as where not to go for advice on fixing it. Even once you've understand what your negative behaviors are, where they come from and what leads to them, thought and behavior patterns can be hard to change. The reason for this can be complicated, but there are a few basic trends. Some thought and behavior patterns are hard to change because even though you may not want to engage in them anymore, they are socially acceptable or even encouraged. Prominent examples include things like drinking or substance abuse, overeating, and other activities. Whatever the behavior, it's probably encouraged in specific environments or social settings. If this is the case, you may need to remove yourself from that environment or social group to avoid prompts for engaging in that unwanted thoughts and behaviors. Some negative behavior patterns can be encouraged by your body, making them even harder to overcome. Some negative behaviors make us feel good, usually because they're based on or mimic a healthy behavior and confuse your body's chemical reward system. If you indulge in this behavior too often, your body can come to associate it with feel-good hormones, leading to a behavioral addiction chemically similar to a substance or disorder. This can be the case with eating certain foods like sugar, playing video games, having sex, and other activities. As much as you might have struggled in your past, there has to be peace of mind realizing that you have the power to change your thoughts and behaviors. Today, I am so much more self-aware and attuned with my thought patterns. My knee-jerk used to be to immediately go to my comfort zone, people-pleasing. But now I know the benefits of letting go of that behavior. I know how free it can feel to let others take care of themselves, learn from their mistakes, and create their own path. Now I hang back and wait to be asked, and then I consider my own needs before I answer. I'm important, and I'm worthy of consideration. Let's take a listen before we end to Jack Canfield, an American author, motivational speaker, corporate trainer, and entrepreneur. He's the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which has more than 250 titles and 500 million copies in print in over 40 languages. Here he's talking about the law of attraction, the cheat code. That place of the future is great, or the future is perfect, or I am healthy when they're not. It's a choice. You simply have to choose it. See, once I learned your beliefs are a choice, we think our beliefs are the result of seeing something outside of us. We say, oh, I believe if a spider bites you, your skin turns red because that's what I saw happen. Yeah, yeah. But we can hypnotize people, tell them my thumb is a poker, hit them on the hand, and their hand will form a blister. 
we can tell people that this is poison ivy and have give them maple leaves and they'll do that and their skin will break out in a rash. Sure. Tell people the poison ivy is a maple leaf, run the poison ivy on it, nobody breaks out in a rash. Right. So we know that so much of our internal behavior and our, our feel good is created by beliefs. Mm -hmm. Now, then the question I had was, well, what should I believe? You know, what if I believe the wrong thing and I'm going to get myself in trouble? I had this big, I was afraid to believe anything for a while. And then I realized the only beliefs that make any sense are the beliefs that will take you from where you are to where you want to go. So what are the beliefs that successful people believe? You know, look at Oprah Winfrey, born into poverty, you know, sexually abused as a child, but she believed that she could get to where she wanted to go. Someone else without that belief didn't try. So simply yeah. the belief and it's a choice. Everything is a binary choice. You're either believing something that takes you where you want to go or something that takes you away from where you want to go. You're choosing love or you're choosing the opposite, which is fear. It's like it's a computer code, zero or one. Which do you want to choose? Now you have to become conscious because most people around you are unconscious and they're just agreeing with everything that's sure, negative. Sure. That's why you want to hang out with positive people. Right. But if you read books like this, if you go to seminars and you meditate and you listen to podcasts, surround yourself with positive energy, pretty soon you get engulfed in this positive thinking and then all of a sudden your life transforms. Most people don't appreciate anybody. Most yeah. people are always focused on what they don't have. You know, I mean, I, I took my son to Africa when he was 16 and we went to Cameroon and we spent 12 days traveling around the country. And this is a kid who grew up in the house that we're filming this in. It's a pretty nice place and he had everything you could possibly want. Sure. Which I'm now not sure was the best idea. <laughs> and we get to Africa and he realizes, I mean, he's always going like, I, I don't have the latest designer shirt, my, my uh -huh. jeans aren't cool. Get to Africa, he says, Dad, these people are happier than me. They have nothing. They don't even have t-shirts. I complain about the stain on my shirt. They don't have shirts. And it changed his life. I mean, it really transitioned wow. him. And so we have to realize that we have so much to be grateful for, so much. And so uncommon appreciation in relationship means for me, uh, at least five times a day, verbally appreciating somebody for something, huh. you know, and whether it's uh, by phone, in person, and if I can't do that, then send an email. So I used to walk around with a three by five card, and I had these daily disciplines of success appreciate five people, meditate, drink 12 glasses of water, go to bed by 11 o'clock, whatever. Wow. And I had to check everything off before I could go to bed. And sometimes I'd get to my five appreciations and I hadn't done it. So I'd send emails to people because it was like one in the morning. Or something. <laughs> but what you get into the attitude of appreciating. Yeah. And also then you can just have an attitude of gratitude about everything. If you look around this room, everything in here was created by somebody else. That painting was painted by a Vietnamese artist. That statue was carved by someone in Malaysia or Tibet. You know, this fireplace was painted by a faux finisher. Somebody put this carpet down, somebody wove it, somebody grew the sheep for it. You know, there's so much to be grateful for. And you go to, I was just in India, and you know, wood floors, tin roofs, people sleeping on the streets, right. you know, and you go, oh, thank God. But we forget. And so if you express gratitude for what you have, and you get more to be grateful for. That's the law of attraction. If you're in America, and you're in a, even if you're on welfare, you're better than, a, you know, mo most of the world, I forget the exact figure, but like half the world lives on $2 a day or less. Incredible. Someone in America on welfare is getting several hundred dollars a month. Sure. You know, they got radio they can listen to, more likely they cell have phones, TV, they got, yeah. they got a cell phone. Yeah. You know, so, um, and here's another statistic. If you're making $100,000 a year, which you are and I am, mm -hmm. you're in the top one-tenth of 1% 1 of earners in the planet. Wow. One-tenth of 1%. That's a lot to be grateful for. Lots to be grateful for. There's a lot of people who make money who are very ungrateful and unhappy. Yeah. 
they're comparing themselves to something they don't have. Uh -huh. So start focusing on what you do have and feel great joy for that. And then the, the weird law is you get more. Yeah. And when you're focusing on what you don't have, even when you have a lot, well, I don't have that latest Ferrari. Sure. I don't have that $52,000 watch. You know, all you have to do is walk through the airport in Dubai and you could get very depressed <laughs> if you were in that mental, yeah. mental state. Cool. Well, what we're saying is I don't have enough. And that is your mantra. I don't have enough. And guess what? Whatever you're affirming, you're going to get more of. You're going to get more of not enough. So abundance is focusing on what you do have. Just go walk down the street. You know, there's trees and air and birds and people and people that, you know, are, you could literally ask people for a dollar and most people would give it to you, you know? Sure. And so by focusing on what you do have, it's saying to the world, I have enough. And then the reality is you're going to get more. And even if you're living in the ghetto, you have a roof over your head. There's people in the world sleeping on the streets, sleeping in the jungle, sleeping out there. You have fresh water. You know, people in Africa are dying because of lack of water that doesn't have disease in it. More likely you have clothes on, you have food to eat. It may not be gourmet food, but it's food. Yeah. So just, God, there's so much we have to be grateful for. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, take an honest look at yourself and be willing to address your characteristics that aren't serving you in a loving and positive way. You have the power to change your thinking and your behavior. And I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. I stumbled through until the path was clear.